Welcome to the next in a series of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast, brought to you by SAM Ramps. Good morning. morning. My name is Emily Wanamaker-Gibbs. I'm here with the SAEM Who's Who podcast, here with Dr. Richard Cantor, Section Chief of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at SUNY Upstate and Medical Director of the Poison Control Center in Syracuse. Thank you so much for having me. One of uh, the best parts of my job is training residents in emergency medicine and pediatrics, so to get a global audience is a rare and daunting challenge. So let's get started. Tell us a little bit about your background and why pediatric emergency medicine. Revealing my age is never pleasant, but when I started out, I was a pediatric resident. I knew at a very early age that I only wanted to take care of kids. I actually was pretty boring. I actually knew it in college. So when I finished my peds residency, I also learned two things. One, I hated clinic and I couldn't stand anything static. I needed a dynamic environment, which left three choices, PICU, NICU. And in the 80s, what was peds emergency medicine, which was nothing. It was a peds ER, and that's why it was an ER, not an ED. So I knew what I was drawn towards. So in essence, I decided to just start running the peds ER at Upstate, which I had no competition. There was no job interview, and over the years, it became exactly the combination of skills and encounters that I needed. I got to see kids in their worst situation and parents in their neediest times and make a difference. I saw the field develop and my practice model develop accordingly. So in essence, uh, again, I am two ways to look at it, either the luckiest person in the world or an unimaginative, uncreative choice maker. Was there something in particular that kind of drew you to emergency medicine in general? I've thought about this for a very long time over the years. Emergency medicine caregivers are sort of narcissistic. They regard every room as a challenge. And they're challenged by the fact that their patients are unknown to them. They come to them with a myriad of complaints. Fortunately, in pediatrics, they're not factitious. They're real. And within a 10 to 15 minute period, you're challenged to sort of own the room. You have to establish confidence with the family. You have to gain their confidence, demonstrate compassion, and win over a child, which is very difficult. Children see right through everybody. In that 10-minute time frame, you have to, whether it be a splinter or a sepsis, deliver appropriate care every single moment, every single day. So within the narcissistic world, that fit. And the other one is, it's a sad but true statement, the ADHD world, you need stim. You need the juice. And emergency medicine is such a wonderful place to sample almost every single possible problem you can have. So I'm blessed. Absolutely. So you've devoted a large part of your career to education in many different forms. Small group education, lectures at the national level, and now you have a new podcast that's going to be coming out called PEMGEMS. Tell us about your inspiration and how you've developed and adapted to changing learning styles over the years. My training in the dark ages was, for lack of a better term, punitive. I'm sure everyone of our listeners is well aware of the good old days stories about being berated on rounds and being demeaned and pimped. I miss it in the sense of the outcome. Many, many negative events are looked upon favorably with a glass eye later on, but it certainly worked. And everything I was ever called out on, I remembered. If you flash forward over the years, that's really not the way to go. I've been challenged by teaching medical students on up to residents and fellows and then ASAP. Now the ASAP story 
Dr. John McCabe was my first chair of emergency medicine, who's one of the icons of emergency medicine. And John got me in the lecture circuit at ASAP. My first lecture, being from Syracuse, New York, the tundra of America was on heat illness. But I was given the talk that no one else wanted, so I had to break in. I have a tape of that, and it's morbidly embarrassing. But I got involved with teaching at ASAP. And what happened at ASAP, and this is important for the residents to know, Emergency Pediatrics is represented by both the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Emergency Physicians. When it was created back in the 80s, it was pretty much the child of the American Board of Pediatrics. Emergency medicine wasn't even huge then in the 80s. As such, the American Board of Pediatrics and AAP sort of ran things, and I was over in that camp when it started. But over the years, and I can say this with enormous credibility, the needs of the pediatric emergency patient are better addressed by the American College of Emergency Physicians than by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Why? Because 85% of the children in this country are taken care of in community hospitals, not in children's hospital of somewhere. In essence, every single person I train as an EM resident is going to be a pediatrician basically a third of the time when they're in their future employment unless they go to the VA. As such, I have to imbue them with a certain body and core body of information. So if I take that backwards to the root cause, it makes total sense to do national teaching. My lectures are tailored for the emergency medicine audience, which means I can't give them to normal people, basically. It has a different slant to it. But it's one of the joys of my life to be able to teach somebody because I'm also sort of a, because of my toxicology training, a geek. So I really enjoy basic sciences and biochem and all the things you guys don't want to hear about. But I think that all this teaching that's been delivered in medical school, which is information in a vacuum, the first two years is just snippets. Every one of you who are listening, you can believe it. One night of your life, you knew the urea cycle. How's that going for you now? The reality of the situation is unless there's visual motor reinforcement of it, it's gone. And that's emergency medicine. So back to your original question, what draws me to teaching is I get emails and text messages from people I've trained over 20 years still asking me about cases. To me, that's better than a Christmas card because it tells me that we're not shift workers. We're not just doing it for the paycheck or the lifestyle, but we're really invested in the care of our patients. So I actually win more than I lose in that situation. Absolutely. So you kind of started to touch on this, but pediatric emergency medicine is a foundational aspect of emergency medicine in general, and most of us who go out and practice in the community will see pediatrics. Was that the reason that you felt we needed to address this on a national level with PEMGEMS? Before PEMGEMS, I should mention that our pediatric emergency medicine fellowship in Syracuse was the first in the country to take an EM pathway resident, which was a big deal because children's hospitals don't even know what PGM people do if they're from EM. PEMGEMS is pretty much, you generally get your best ideas when you're not trying. You generally get your best ideas when you're on a plane or doing nothing. I do so much case-based teaching in emergency medicine because today's learner, everybody makes jokes about millennials and whatever, but the simple fact of the matter is there's a finite human attention span. It's a real deal, get over it. And Cases are how you learn in EM. At my age, and I have a colleague who's parallax, the residents say, well, how do you know all this stuff? I said, I'm not that smart. I've been to the movie a lot. So the reality is, why not take the cases that I present? I'm speaking two days from now on mistakes cases. Well, I have over 73 of them, 
and I'm going to do video podcasts, which Pem Gems is, you got to come up with a catchy title, which will be short, less than 10 minute cases with case presentations, decisions that I made that may have not been perfect, nothing harmful, that took a little bit longer to get to the diagnosis, and in the end, do this, a lesson that's learned. And matching cases with the time span that's given, it'll be a video podcast that'll be available, it'll be an app and disseminated nationally. I'm not much of a business person, so I don't think it's going to be anything more than chairware. And I'm looking forward to it. And it'll probably be done in about six to eight months. And I hope everybody out there avails themselves of it. I think that's a wonderful opportunity for all of us to hear about some of those cases. And as a medical student, we loved having those presentations that were case-based. I think those are all our favorite days. So having that, I think, is an excellent, excellent opportunity. Talking a little more about medical students and residents and at our level, what advice do you have for those of us who are considering pediatric emergency medicine? Well, first of all, pediatric emergency medicine, the fellowships are developing nationally, so they'll get less competitive. That's the good news part of it. Right now, it's about a four to one applicant to physician ratio. I'm particularly enjoying that because I don't have to defend the climate in Syracuse when I have people to interview, but nonetheless, the landscape is improving and general emergency medicine groups are really enjoying obtaining peds emergency medicine people who are trained because they're switch hitters their em pathway number two they complement a wonderful em residency today's em resident and that's everybody on the other end of this mic when you look at your programs i'm sure many of you look to see whether they have an ultrasound fellowship wilderness fellowship hyperbarics tots because you may not want to jump right out of residency into practice. Well, if you can offer PEM as well. Now, I'm proud to say that four of my graduates are division heads of PEDS emergency medicine divisions in emergency medicine programs. And that's my goal, to spread the knowledge, but also the personnel. PEDS departments, if I can be a little philosophical, really don't understand what we do. And for the listeners on the other end of this, one of my slides, when I talk about generating respect in emergency medicine, first slide is I would never do anything but emergency medicine. But the second slide often says, and I'll stand by this, that emergency medicine is the only subspecialty where someone who has no idea what you do is convinced that they can do it and they, you're not doing it right. Now that's sour grapes, it's cynical, I'm a burnout, whatever you want to say, but how do you beat that? You beat that by being the smartest person in the room and knowing your patients. And I tell my fellows and residents, if what you do is in the best interest of your patients, nothing else really matters. So back to what I like about PEM is it's gap filling in knowledge. And who doesn't like kids? And it's funny, my colleagues who I tremendously respect can come back from the adult ED and you know put a chest tube in or save somebody who's septic or deal with some psychotic person or in general deal with the decrepit state of adulthood and then see one crying baby and have a stroke. And I think it's cute for a second, but I said, oh my God, you have all the skills there. I just have to refocus them. So in essence, since I train EM and PEDS residents, I'm blessed I have the mechanism to do that. Today's learner has different needs and I'm evolving with it, hopefully. Definitely. You kind of started to touch on burnout and you've managed to build this incredibly multifaceted and successful career over the years. How do you stay inspired and excited even in the face of young residents who are being burned out during residency? Well, first of all, I'm very blessed in Syracuse. Our PDM group and my EM group, we're a family. We have a very, very holistic group of people that work together. I have 10, now 11 PEDS emergency medicine attendings and six fellows. 
And I'm a real people person in the sense that I want people to grow as a unit. So that recharges me. I don't just go to work and come home. I just finished a sabbatical for six months to work on Pam Gems. And it was a good test of whether I should retire or should I be home more. I think my wife voted that I shouldn't be home more. But the reality was, I got back into the ED. My first shift back, I was nervous because you lose your sea legs a little bit. And I told the nurses, you know, check my work. I haven't done this at all. And that I walked in a room, it was a very, very busy night. It was one low-lying, easy case, and the mother looks up, she says, about goddamn time. You know how long I've been waiting? And a voice in my head said, you're back. <laughs> and I realized I was home. My PZD is my house. It's where I reside. Now, I have tons of other hobbies. It's not like I'm some unicorn. And I love my family dearly, and that situation is very enticing. But my work, basically, is my epinephrine. And I know that every single kid that I've taken care of, I lived in Syracuse for too long, and Emily can speak to this, she's a local person. I can't walk anywhere in town, my wife detested, and somebody will thank me for taking care of their kid. And that's the juice, that's what you want to have. So in essence, it's a private practice in a way. It's interesting. Now, there are other reasons going to emergency medicine which are different than home body life, but if you don't gain intellectual satisfaction from your cases. And you should talk about your cases because you are scientists. Think of all the that you went through to become a resident. Think back one, two, or three years to when you sat on that stage and they gave you a diploma and became a physician or a PA or a extender. It's a big freaking deal. You lose sight of it. It's not a job, it's a career and it's a vocation. And again, if you do what's best for your patient, you're doing Basically, I'm not very spiritual, but it's God's work. I mean, you're doing the right thing. So for me, it's very easy. I get my gasoline through my work, and uh, I'm blessed by that. It doesn't always happen. Absolutely. You started to touch on, you know, the importance of your team being like a family to you. As young medical students and residents, we're all looking for that mentor, that person who can kind of inspire us in the way that you have for me. What advice do you have for students in finding that person and how to connect? That's a great question. Well, it depends on the venue that you're training in in med school. Most med schools now have at least some exposure for the medical student to EM. And I got to tell you, that was a 30-year battle because back in the day, no one cares about 30-plus years going on. You know, psych had eight weeks in the clerkship and medicine had two years and surgery's never-ending. And EM was knocking on the door. We finally got in, and what would confound this little political point of mine, medical schools are having to deal with the fact that, and again to our residents who know this because they went through the match, emergency medicine is a hot ticket now. It's very interesting for me to have perspective and watch it. The hierarchies of medical school are all my age group, you know, we're AARP members. When we trained, and I'll cop to this, we were not very good. Emergency medicine was itinerant, it wasn't organized, it wasn't boarded, there weren't residencies. So when you deal with your deans and your hierarchy in medical schools, they really don't know what we do. Oh, you're just an ER guy. People ask me obscenely insulting questions about, you know, was it busy today? I said, no one came in, it was empty. You know, or do you see much child abuse? I said, no, we cured it with a vaccine. I mean, it's just absurdities. But that generation is done. But in the interval, we have taken over med schools. We're a clerkship bound in the third year and sub-interns, AIs, whatever you guys call it, in the fourth year, super subscribed to. 
And in Syracuse, again, it's my house, I would say that at least 10 to 15% of the graduating class goes into emergency medicine. This drives the internal medicine and the surgical people wacko. Like, what are we doing wrong? What are they doing? Are they giving them free food? But the reality is everybody gets jealous about it, and it's interesting. Nonetheless, they disrespect us until they're gone. Now, you know, and I'm talking to two first-year residents, how hard it is to get into emergency medicine now. And now, when somebody wants some resources 10 years from now and you're in charge, you'll say, hey, I went to school with that guy. He's pretty smart. You know, he's not just some ER person. So it's almost paralleling the situation in the country. The next generation will remedy the insanity that is going on. It's just a matter of time. I may not be here for it, but I know it's going to happen. So for med students, go to your emergency medicine department. There are always student-friendly people. There are also national people who can point you in the best direction of what programs you can apply to. And if you're worth anything, we'll call somebody or help you with a letter to get you a spot in a quality resident. Anybody who's committed to academic teaching is also committed to the future development of the specialty. So as in Emily's case, I recognize quality. I tried to make her stay in Syracuse, didn't quite work out. Nonetheless, the situation was, okay, let's get her the best possible program. So for me, that's a win-win situation. You can't make a chicken and duck. If you're a crummy student, I don't want to know your name. But the reality is we're supposed to build our specialty. Find the department, and I guarantee you they're going to have a student advocate mixed in with it. In terms of your own past, looking back on steps that you took, what would you say were foundational steps that got you where you are today, and is there anything that you would change? Well, I certainly would have had a healthier lifestyle when I was younger. I've been blessed. My training, although it was, you know, I jokingly said it was punitive, I had a simple rule when I was a resident. I found the smartest person in the residency, and I hung out with him. How did you get so smart? Why don't I know that? We have a motto in the PTD that we can train any deficiency. Seriously, if you don't know something, that's my job. If you're scared, it's my job. Efficiency, except three things. You can't be lazy. You can't lie. You can't be late, but that's a personal preference. If I look back on what developed me, is I always had heroes. And again, this is ageism. I don't know who your heroes are. I don't know. I'm not upset about it. I'll live. I'll be teaching somebody something, and it's a bit egocentric, and I'll say, look, they just seem totally disinterested. Don't they know what I'm trying to do here? But, you know, it's almost like dating. Not everyone works out. Just get over it. But if I could do anything differently, i tell you what I would do. I'd go back to med school. I did a little bit. My daughter was a medical student in Syracuse a few years ago, and I audited a lot of the first and second years. They had to let me in. I was paying for it. But it was eye-opening as to how irrelevant it was, how absolutely crazy it was. So, But anatomy was fun. Doing other things differently, I moonlit my butt off when I was a resident, and I should have been home more. You only get one family, hopefully. <laughs> you want to be there for, unless you have financial constraints, that's none of my business, but as much as you can. You can't get it back. You can't video it. I know it's a techie world, but my wife worked full-time. She was a special ed teacher. She's the rock of me. We're a perfect match. She has an attention span, and I don't. She finishes a thought. I will never finish a thought. But she worked, and I worked in my residency, and then I moonlit. And if I could give you some advice, the money will come. Be home. Kids only grow longitudinally. They don't regress, hopefully. Thank you so much for sharing all that you did today. We're so happy to be here with you and look forward to hearing more from you in the future.
All right, it's a pleasure. And listen, remember what I said to the residents out there. First of all, more and more, if you look at national volumes, you are the physicians of America. You have, sadly, in my mind, in pediatrics, you become the primary caretakers of the American situation, regardless of what anyone will tell you. As such, you can make a huge impact. You may not be super qualified to do preventative medicine. You can try post facto injury prevention. It can make you feel impotent at times. But think about what you're presented with. Regardless of the age of the patient, and certainly I'm more peds-driven, I guess the best way of saying it is no one likes to go to the doctor, no less the emergency department. And people have preconceived notions of what they're going to run into in emergency medicine because of television and media. People will stop me on a busy shift and they'll say, hey, this is just like the TV show. And I said, no, I'm not dating anybody I'm working with. But the reality is you're faced with a challenge again, and I want to reemphasize it. Hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so. What can I do for you today? And then God bless you if you get a straight story or whatever you get. And you have to sort out the needs assessment and deliver confidence, quality, compassion, hopefully, and a good resolution to the situation. And if you do that, how can you possibly have a better experience than that? Even if you don't make the biggest difference in the world, for that period of time, you alleviated somebody's fears and possibly took them from the most frightening experience they could ever have to something that they can rationally deal with later. Who gets that job? It's a challenge and it's an incredible blessing. So I have to give you my joke. It sums up for your residents. They'll know this. It's a Woody Allen joke, so half the country won't get it. A guy goes to his doctor and he says, Doc, he goes to a psychiatrist, you got to help me. My brother's crazy. Doc says, well, what's wrong with your brother? He said, he's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And the doc says, what do you mean? He says, he's convinced he's a chicken. He said, well, bring him in. I'll cure him. He says, no, I can't. We need the eggs. <laughs> That's emergency medicine. You can't. You need the eggs. So good luck to all the trainees out there and just take care of the patient. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Cantor, and thanks everyone for joining you. I'm Emily Wanamaker-Gibbs from the University of Rochester with our Who's Who podcast.